Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sophie. I'm Yelly. And this is She's All Fat. The podcast for fat positivity, radical self-love, and chill vibes only. Now in our final season. Final, final, final. Season, season, season. (laughs) In this episode, we're covering fat fertility and reproductive justice with Dr. Mae Friedman. But first, our news corner. In case you missed it last week, we're opening up a little Google form for you, our beloved listeners and family members, to write little notes of love to this fat community you've helped build over the last four years. Four years, wow. Isn't that crazy? We're going to read your letters throughout the season on air, post them on Insta, and have a little home for all that love on our website. I feel so sentimental about the family, and I feel so proud when I see the connections y'all have made with each other online and IRL. Check the show notes for the Google form link and please write a love letter to the family. Family, in the final season of She's All Fat, our Patreon is more important than ever. We want to make sure our website and all of our episodes will be available long after our finale. And that's where the money from our Patreon is going to make sure that folks can listen and access the resources we've compiled over the years. Not to mention, it's your last chance to get in on all of our Patreon perks. When you join our Patreon at Team Paisley Moo Moo or above, that's $7 a month, you get access to our legendary patron-only Facebook group where people are talking about fat tarot cards, soup, and dating apps. <laughs> You'll also get a bonus mini-sode every Friday. This season, we're doing something new and exciting for these minis. That's right, we're doing a big sister mailbag. Every week, we're taking your questions about topics like dating and work and answering like the big sisters we both are. This week, we're answering your questions about dating. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak preve. In conclusion, now's the perfect time to go to patreon.com slash she's all fat pod and make a pledge to help your fave fatties and future fat members. So, like we said, this week's episode is about reproductive justice and all the ways it intersects with fatness and fat justice. Before we play the interview, I want to spend some time talking about reproductive justice and who often gets left out of this combo. First, a little history. We've got this from Sister Song, a woman of color reproductive justice collective. Indigenous women, women of color, and trans people have always fought for reproductive justice, but the term was invented when a group of black women gathered in Chicago in June of 1994. They recognized that the women's rights movement, led by and representing middle-class and wealthy white women, could not defend the needs of women of color and other marginalized women and trans people. We needed to lead our own national movement to uplift the needs of the most marginalized women, families, and communities. More history from Sister Song. Quote, these women named themselves women of African descent for reproductive justice, and RJ was born. Rooted in the internationally accepted human rights framework created by the United Nations, reproductive justice combines reproductive rights and social justice. The progenitors of RJ launched the movement by publishing a historic full-page statement with 800-plus signatures in the Washington Post and Roll Call. Just three years later, in 1997, Sister Song was formed to create a national multi-ethnic reproductive justice movement. Even now, mainstream reproductive justice movements often fail to address the specific needs of indigenous women, women of color, and trans people. We aren't the experts on those specific needs, but we did some research and we have some experts to point you towards. I want to shout out Sister Song, of course, as well as Fertility for Colored Girls and an organization called Ancient Song. Check the show notes for those links and please do check them out. One specific thing that we did want to 
cover is how intertwined reproductive justice is with the history of eugenics and forced sterilization, specifically of Black and Indigenous folks with uteruses. Content note here for details about forced sterilization. I'm going to quote from a piece by Natasha Leonard, linked in the show notes, quote, eugenics programs directed at decimating the lives of black, indigenous and other people of color, particularly poor and immigrant communities, as well as people with disabilities, were an explicit part of U.S. policy in the 20th century. 32 states maintained federally funded eugenics boards tasked with ordering sterilizations of women and sometimes men deemed undesirable. Tens of thousands of forced sterilizations were carried out nationwide last century. This piece later quotes Angeline Chaplin, noting, quote, During the same time that Roe v. Wade granted mostly white women more bodily autonomy in the 1970s, approximately 25,000 Native American women were forcibly sterilized by the U.S. government, between 25 and 50 percent of the female population. This history is not just history, but something that affects how Black and Indigenous folks with uteruses, as well as other people of color, seek treatment and are treated in the medical world today. Forced sterilization still happens, largely affecting incarcerated Black and brown peoples. We'll include some more info in next week's episode, which is a part two about fertility and reproductive justice, as well as a ton of resources and places to donate. And please do donate if you're able. I hope that gives you a little bit more context when we talk about reproductive justice and the people that are still being left out as you listen to our episode. Now, here it is. I'm here, Fatmali, with Dr. May Friedman, an associate professor in the Ryerson University School of Social Work and Ryerson York Graduate Program in Communication and Culture. Dr. Friedman's recent works explore fatness and fertility, reproduction and parenting, and examinations of fat temporalities. That is a mouthful. We're going to get into what all of that means. But first, Dr. Friedman, welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This is a real honor. Yay, we're so glad you're here. So a little bit about my work. I guess a lot of what I do, I think for so many of us, is always coming through who I am and how I live. So I'm a medium-sized, fat, racialized woman. I live in Canada, and I parent four young people. And so that... Oh my gosh. Yeah, you know, keeps me busy and has been a real through line in a lot of my work. So I've written and thought a lot about motherhood. I've written and thought a lot about fat, about race, about transnationalism, and bringing a lot of these different ideas into context with one another, into relationship with one another. I also have written a fair bit about popular culture, Heck yeah. Yeah, which my kids tease me as just an excuse to watch a lot of reality TV and call it research. <laughs> yeah, well, what else do you want to do for a job? Right. Why wouldn't you do that if you could? Exactly. They're not wrong. <laughs> So can you talk to us a little bit about what reproductive justice is and what fat justice is and how those things relate for you? Fair enough. I will say these are always porous definitions. This is just my take on it. Yes. This is just our framework for this. Exactly. I think of reproductive justice as really about access more than anything else. So access to abortion has been a big part of the reproductive justice fight in the last decades, for sure. But it's also about access to any kind of reproductive care, which includes birth control, which includes fertility and any kind of reproductive planning, pregnancy and postpartum support, and just really maximizing choice in any of those spaces. The way that I understand fat justice is similar, that we ought to be able to live you know, whole, well lives, whatever that means to each and every one of us. And I deliberately am avoiding the word health here because I don't think that that's achievable or desirable for everybody, right? Yes. But that we are permitted to live in the world to the best way possible. And I see these things as in dialogue with one another because it's a really undiscussed, I think sometimes, fat space that when you're living through it can feel really quite overwhelming quite ugly and that there's a lot of gatekeeping around fat reproductive justice. I mean, it starts at the point of entry where we hypersexualize fat bodies or asexualize fat bodies, but it continues right the way through to thinking about the ways that we take up fat parents and parents of fat kids. Yes. It's a real through line in our fat lives, of course. That 
is very well said. And I think it's really true. We get a lot of emails from people who have questions about how and if and what they'll need to be able to like pursue their own fertility or like wanting to have kids. Or we get a lot of asks from people who are like, do you know any like fat positive doctors Mm -hmm. who can help me with my fertility? Like doctors keep telling me I just have to lose weight, blah, blah, blah. So this is like clearly something that is is needed in academia because anything that is like problem like in the real world means that there's like not representation in academia absolutely <laughs> either absolutely yeah okay i want to read the title of this piece of your work fat reproductive justice navigating the boundaries of reproductive health care and a little quote from it the experiences of people in larger bodies seeking fertility and or pregnancy care through a reproductive justice lens, integrating an understanding of weight stigma with an understanding of who has access to reproductive technologies, who is allowed to become pregnant and the discourses that surround pregnancy. That's just kind of a summary that like the one you just gave us. Mm-hmm. What did you write about in there? Tell us about what you found. I mean, I'm sure it's very like, it's like, it's hard. <laughs> to <be> yes. <laughs> but what are some of the details? Yeah. Um, that there's a, space of so much grief and so much shame. And there's already a lot of grief and shame and silence, I think, around reproduction generally, around unwanted reproduction, but also around very, very wanted, very desired reproduction. I think it's a complicated space, maybe because it's also so heavily gendered. And so it's something that we don't take the lid off of in a lot of different ways. And so to have that then be intersected with discourses of fatness and the ways your fat body gets taken up when you need help, or if you want extra support, it gets really messy. And it's a really, really tender spot for people. You talk about how a lot of people have to become self-advocates in order to find care. You say, we discuss how individualizing resilience represents an incomplete solution in navigating the shaming and blaming encounters participants experience with healthcare providers. And I really resonate with that. That's something that I, I mean, I've always known I want to have a family, but I'm not quite ready, but I am 30. Mm-hmm. So within the next couple of years, mm-hmm. I want to be thinking about it. And that's something that like feels exhausting and overwhelming to me, having known what I've had to do so far to get help for the various things that I have. That's right. I'm like looking ahead to that, like, oh God, this seems like a huge mountain to mm-hmm. climb. Did you find any helpful things or is did you were you mostly finding like, oh, this really sucks? So a couple things. Folks who need fertility support have a particularly hard time. Yeah. I think because in our popular imaginary, fertility support is seen as optional, indulgent, unnecessary, mm. right? So a lot of stories of folks who are told that because they're bigger, they can't do IVF because it will require anesthesia, even though these are folks who are getting anesthesia for many other things with no discussion. And I I often think there's a real parallel between gender affirming surgeries and fertility treatments that are seen as somehow luxuries as opposed to part of our, you know, ability to live well and wholly, right? Yes. Once you are pregnant, I will say that for me personally and professionally, midwifery support made an astronomical difference. And it's one of the first places I ever encountered body positive health care. And I think a lot of my fat awakening actually was born through encounters with my midwife. Really? Yeah. I chose to have my babies at home after my first kid. And, you know, I'm a researcher, so I went and I read all that research, and that's a pretty countercultural thing to do to decide that you're going to step outside of the hospital model for childbirth. Yeah. And it sort of woke me up in a way where I thought, well, if this is bullshit, (laughs) maybe a lot of the other health stuff that I am being told is absolutely correct is also bullshit. So I think for me, it was a gateway drug to being able to unpack fat and health discourses in a really interesting way. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about this part in this abstract, like what you found out about who is allowed to become pregnant and what Mm -hmm. that means? Yeah. So larger women, whether or not they had established reproductive concerns, I should say women and and pregnancy seeking people. People with uteruses. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Larger people with uteruses whether or not they had any reason to have concerns about reproduction, were flagged as people that would have problems right at the get-go. Yeah. And so even people who had had prior pregnancies that for whatever reason, you know, they had chosen not to carry on or prior completed pregnancies were still told, well, you better hurry up. You're going to be in in trouble. There's a lot of fear mongering. Well, if you do manage to get pregnant, you're going to be at risk for all of these horrible things, which isn't really useful 
particularly if you can't change your body, like what's the point of knowing that? Even if it is true, which I really query whether that's the case or not. And that's before we get to the official gatekeeping of actual fertility spaces. And there are a lot of fat people in fertility spaces because many of the conditions that make our bodies fat sometimes do correlate with conditions that may make it harder for us to achieve pregnancy, right? And so even though before we get to those spaces, though, there's a real gatekeeping, a real discussion, a real sneering. I heard stories from people, you know, the idea that people would be in a position to get pregnant, that someone could love you and want to make a family with you was even given kind of treated derisively. So it's a pretty, pretty ugly space. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to look at it. Like who's allowed to become pregnant. I have definitely felt that pressure, even as someone who is not quite at the point yet where I'm doing it, you know, like when I've thought about it, Mm -hmm. part of the reason it's been intimidating to me is because of that feeling, you know, and, and talking about your work in reality as well. There's so much about Mm -hmm. like fat bodies, not being good parents or being a good pregnancy things on like any kind of weight loss show that always say, I want to be able to have kids or like, I want to do this for my kids or whatever. Like as if you can only be a good parent if you're thin, basically. Well, and even worse than that, I wrote an article about Here Comes Honey Boo Boo about the first couple seasons of the show before it went completely sideways. Oh yes, tell us. And in the first couple seasons of the show, not only is she a fat mom to fat kids, but she celebrates her kids' bodies. And that's the butt of the joke. Yeah, We are meant to, as an audience, be making fun of her because she's so stupid, frankly. She's presented as so stupid and so backward that she would tell her kids that they can be beautiful at any size. And for me, I think the first two seasons of the show are actually kind of a feminist anthem in a lot of ways. And I think it's really heartbreaking, the the aftermath of what happened with the folks that were on that show. But the beginning part of it, as much as it was meant to be constructed as something that we made fun of, I thought was actually really quite empowering and amazing. Yeah. So that's a good transition to how reproductive justice and parenting intersect. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about fat parenting or queer fat parenting or how these things intersect sure look parenting is fucking hard (laughs) it's really hard it's hard (laughs) and it's unpredictable and you know you can parent lots of kids at least I can who turn out to be completely different people under the same conditions because it's a dynamic and very just bizarre and strange enterprise you know And the problem is that anytime you parent from a non-mainstream position, anything that goes wrong and things will go wrong, they will always go wrong, is attributed to anything about you that is unusual. So it's because you're a racialized person. It's because you're black. It's because you're fat. It's because you're queer. It's because you're trans. And I think that, of course, the answer is that we're all screwing up our kids all the time because that is the nature of the game, because it is an impossible task you know, we love them and we screw them up and then we get up each day and we try again to do it a little bit better. Yeah. But if I'm screwing them up, it's not because I'm fat. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's because you didn't go to therapy. Everyone should go to therapy. That's how you screw up your kids. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. So I want to know what, when you're looking at these things, have you seen any hopeful things or things that make you feel excited or things that you want people to know about as resources? Like, cause I'm sure there's a lot of stories I could be like, tell me the worst. I don't really want to hear the worst. I'm, I already know how bad it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, um, a few things. When I talk to young people, I have a lot more hope because I see them reset their lens on the way that they observe bodies in a different kind of way. And it's not, you know, because I'm so great in talking to them, it's because they're just not as entrenched in the idea that fat is intrinsically bad. Even though they're getting that message from every piece of media they consume, they're getting it from gym class, they're getting it from all sorts of different places. Yeah. I do find that when I talk to younger people, I can start to unpack that a little bit. And that does give me hope that we're moving in a different kind of direction. I think as well, the angrier we get, the more things change. I have to believe that that's true. Mm -hmm. It starts from the center. So I do have a certain amount of grief about the extent to which fat rage is guiding reproductive justice, predominantly among bodies that are already privileged in other ways, because that's where we can afford to have the fight. 
But I'm hopeful that there will yeah. be a trickle down to the spaces that we need to see that this will really become kind of justice across the board in a greater way. What are the things that people who are not in the healthcare field can do to like help promote that kind of thing? Is there like specific stuff that straight size allies could do? Like, I'm just so unfamiliar with the fertility world at all. I'm not even sure what to ask you about. Well, it's interesting. It's a little bit like never assuming that you know somebody's pronouns. Never assume that you know somebody's reproductive story, you know? So when we say things, and this is not just for fat folks, but like, oh, you know, and it's so lucky that you didn't have kids when that relationship fell apart or, you know, anything else, you know, remarking on people's journey around reproductive issues What I'm learning more and more is there's always a story. I think just assuming that people have complicated lives is probably a good point of entry to any of this. Around reproduction, parenting, pregnancy, all of those pieces, we just don't know. And I think being a good ally is just assuming we don't know. I personally have had weird feelings about becoming pregnant because of how many times I have been mistaken for being Mm. pregnant for having a like a round belly. Has that ever come up in your research or does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is really stressful for folks. I think we have a really clear aesthetic of pregnancy and that comes up a lot. So for me, actually, I was sad because I didn't look pregnant for the longest time Uh and I really wanted to look pregnant. And I think some of that is internalized fat phobia because, you know, there is a like looking at like a pregnant person somehow redeemed my fat body. Sure. But some of it was also just that I wanted that experience of being, you know, given a seat on. You wanted to be recognized. I wanted to get a seat on the streetcar. Let's be real. You know? Yes. (laughs) I think there is a sense of like what bodies ought to do that is overwhelming. Uh I think of how often getting back to reality TV, which seems to be the through line here for us. But like, I didn't know I was pregnant or even I'm watching the entire back log of ER episodes with my one of my kids right now, which is quite a project. (laughs) But you know, the fat pregnant person who didn't know they were pregnant and comes in and the the pregnancy was hidden. And again, it becomes a narrative of how they are both fat and stupid. Because how could a person not know that they're pregnant? So I think the sense that there's really like an established sense of what a pregnancy ought to look like, behave like, and not having access to that, I think there's grief that comes with that for sure. Definitely. So figuring out what that feels like. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough now when I'm not trying to be pregnant to find support for me health-wise and nutritionally and the clothes I want to wear. And I feel very trepidatious about finding those things when I try to pursue that Mm -hmm. because it seems very clear to me that it's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. No. So pregnancy and postpartum and parenting, it's really about seeding control in a really profound way. Your body is out of control. Your life is out of control. Your time is no longer yours in the same way. And the problem is that if you are a fat person and you are out of control, you're really buying into a lot of stereotypes that are extremely uncomfortable and can get you in a lot of trouble, even to the extent of having your kids taken away at the most extreme end of things, right? Except for these out of control things are happening to everybody. You know, some people can eat nothing but junk food through the entirety of their pregnancies because that is what's going to make them not barf constantly. Well, if you you do that in a skinny body, you know, you might feel a bit guilty. You might get a little bit of a side eye from whomever, right? But you do that in a fat body and that gets taken up completely differently. And I don't mean to demonize junk food. That's not at all what I'm trying to say here. All I'm saying is that. No, it's how people view you. It's how people look at you. It has nothing to do with the actual food. That's right. I mean, I have seen a couple fat acquaintances go through pregnancy who are not super fat positive. And I think I saw them struggle a lot with that wanting all those things But also they didn't have the support of like a fat positive community, you know? So I think it was like almost harder. I mean, like definitely harder for them because they're still like having trouble without the framework of like knowing that you should be treated better, you know? Well, and when you add in a baby, it gets really complicated because then when you have this discourse of like, who will think of the children? Well, don't you really care about your child? Don't you want to be around long enough for them to grow up? That's like the line every time. Like, no, I want to die face first in in tacos. What are you (laughs) talking about? What do you think? But then any internalized garbage that you already had and like, who doesn't? It gets really amplified when people start invoking your unborn child or your born child for that matter, right? Yeah. Even if you're still in diet culture, it doesn't make it easier. Even if you think you're aligning with 
what mainstream wants for you. It doesn't make it any easier because you're still going to face the bad stuff. So can you tell me like what, like what are the structural problems here that are in the way of making care available besides like, or maybe it is just like racism and <laughs> fat phobia particularly, <laughs> but like what are some of the more structural things that you talk about? There needs to just be a total shift in orientation in the way that we think about fatness, obviously, but the way that we think about fatness and yeah. reproduction in particular Fat people are going to get pregnant. This is just what happens, right? Fat people yeah. are going to be part of, you know, produce Because sperm. fat people can get pregnant. That's right. That's like a huge, I mean, not to go sideways, but that was like for a long time, I was very afraid I wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to because that was the message mm-hmm. I got from everyone. That's right. When I was not even interested in it, I was like, guess I'll be infertile. Right. Right. Like, right. Well, and as though there aren't any infertile skinny people. So, Right. This is the other piece is like, as soon as you go in, you're told lose weight and that's not helpful. (laughs) It's not helpful. So yes, this is going to be a huge part of people's lives on every side of it as people who produce sperm, as people who have uteruses, as people who produce eggs. And it's our responsibility to just understand this as the normal trajectory of life. And so for people who don't interact with the medical system, this is a place that you can suddenly become really medicalized. So having access to big enough tables, to big enough cuffs, all the things we talk about in other healthcare spaces becomes really important. But also, you know, in choosing midwifery, I did not have to get weighed, you know, yeah. and so that made a huge difference to my experience of my own care. That doesn't happen in mainstream OBGYN settings where weight is seen as a huge predictor of the outcome of a pregnancy, even though yeah. it's a very poor predictor. So I think just generally, it, it's more of a turning around of the entire medical profession, rather than necessarily something specific to this. That said, comfortable chairs in postpartum spaces, you know, understanding that breastfeeding or chest feeding spaces need to be fat positive, need to be constructed with all sorts of different kinds of bodies in mind. My kingdom for a comfy chair everywhere I go. I swear to God, I'm so tired. Like I recently crossed over between where I can fit in most chairs and then I can't fit in Mm. most chairs now. I'm like right on the edge. And it makes my life much Mm -hmm. worse, much worse. It's harder for me to fit, like literally just harder for me to fit places. Well, could the world be any clearer in the message that you shouldn't be here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Horrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah, 100%. Are there like medical studies about midwifery and like fatness and outcomes there? Like in the same way that I know there's tons of studies showing diets don't work and yet those aren't paying attention to. Is there similar for fatness and pregnancy or is there is it looked at i think that where fatness and pregnancy is looked at it's demonized and it's pathologized and the inclusion criteria for midwives are going to be different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and depending on whether it's regulated or not so in ontario obesity is not a pre-existing condition uh to a certain point i should say so you can get in with a midwife and then you get to have feminist informed care, which often, but not always means fat friendly care. Although again, that varies from practice to practice. I don't think that there has been specific information taking collected though around fat friendly outcomes and reproduction. I think it's just still really taken for granted that fat bodies are riskier than non-fat bodies and therefore must be treated yeah. as such. And so I do wonder how many fat folks are risked out of midwifery care and then once you're out, it's really it's really hard to proceed, of course. Interesting. So do you know about in other countries how to approach midwifery or midwife stuff if it's not as regulated as in Canada? In Canada, people should just follow what you're saying. Yeah. This sounds clear. Yeah. But what about here? What about in the terrible country to <laughs> your south? What do we do here? I mean, the first thing you do is that you see if your insurance covers any midwives. And if so, you go track them down and interview them as soon as possible Because there's a shortage, I should say. In North America, there's a shortage. Certainly in Canada, there's a shortage. I often say to people, before Mm. the test is dry, make that call. You might not be ready to tell your parents, but call Mm. the midwife because lots of people are turned away. And I think in the U.S., that's the case as well. And it really is geographically specific. So some regions are Mm. going to have, you know, a preponderance of midwives. There's a lot in L.A. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. California is what is coming to mind for me. California and New York. But, uh, you know, elsewhere, like I don't know how many midwives there are in other parts of the U.S. In Europe, midwifery is much more commonplace. 
And it doesn't always mean the same thing that I'm discussing. So midwives become kind of more like nurse practitioners specializing in gynecological and obstetric care, and they may not have the politic behind mm-hmm. it in all jurisdictions. I don't know a ton about European mm-hmm. midwifery, but it is different. So I don't think that what I'm saying necessarily totally translates. I think what you want is a feminist practitioner, and you're likelier to get one in a midwife. Yeah. doesn't mean that there are no feminist OBGYNs who are guided by fat-friendly principles, but the extent to which you can start by taking some of that for granted if you select a midwife, it might not be true. You might have a super fat-phobic midwife, but it's less likely that that's the first thing that's going to, you know, you're going to be presented with when you come in the door. Yeah. Pregnancy and childbirth in general just seems like an arena that has so many myths so much pathologizing and so also so much false info everywhere around it. I mean, we're specifically talking about, you know, the false info that people get about their own risks or their own abilities right now in fat bodies. For myself, I feel afraid of navigating this because I am very much like a science person, but also the medical field hasn't always listened to science slash like undercuts me all the time. And I don't want to just use some essential oils, you know, but I want something more. You know what I mean? It's like feels like there's these two hard bookends that I. Yeah. 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 And the problem is that we are sitting ducks because, you know, we want our kids to be okay, And we want to believe that if we buy enough or take enough or do enough that we can game the system into making sure our kids are okay. And listen, I want that more than anybody else. I hear that. But it's it's bullshit. Yeah, it, not, nothing. There's no guarantee. And that is the scariest news in the world. But I think if you're also totally. told that you're coming from a broken body, a broken spirit, you know, you're a broken person, then the extent to which you are vulnerable to that messaging is even greater. Yeah. So it's really hard to figure out what you do instead. Right. Totally. Because pregnancy, I think, I mean, obviously, especially the first time you if you planning to have more than one kid, it's an extreme. It's something you've never done before. Right. Like there's many things my body has changed many times over the years, but that's one. It feels like a, it feels like a huge, it's a whole other thing, you know? And I will say though, then if you're fat and you're trying to get pregnant and it goes poorly, it's particularly painful and particularly bad because you've already Mm -hmm. been told your body's broken, but man, when it goes well, and I know that this is not everybody's story, but when it goes well, that feels like fucking redemption. You know, it really does. It can be incredibly healing. To know that your body yeah. is doing what other bodies do unremarkably. And I, I think that that is underestimated, the extent to which there's an enormous amount of healing. And I hesitate to say that because I don't want to say that at the expense of the folks for whom it doesn't go. Sure. And I'm really mindful. So it's something yeah. I say kind of on the down low because I don't want to be gloating, right? Yeah. But I think it is meaningful to know that when you've been told that your body is deficient in every respect and then you you know, fairly unremarkably get pregnant and produce children, that can be a real, a real solace. Yes, totally. I mean, it does feel like there's a need for some witnessing of all the pain that you're talking about, like the pain surrounding it and the fear and the grief that comes with various stages of this. And I don't know that I have, well, I certainly haven't heard of it, but again, I'm not super confident about my knowledge base because I'm not in the pregnancy world yet. But I certainly haven't heard of places that like or people or perspectives that help you work through that as a fat person. Yeah, as a fat person specifically, I don't know them either. So, you know, when we have experienced grief and loss, there's a lot of supports around grief and loss. Although, again, they're very hidden. You have to go digging for them. It's like other shitty things that happen to us that we, you know, when you when it happens Mm -hmm. to you, you suddenly realize it happened to like 75 percent of the population, but nobody ever talked about it. And I think that pregnancy yes. loss or infertility, those are on that list, that it's ubiquitous. A lot of people have miscarriages, right? Oh, yeah. Like one in four. Yeah. And that's acknowledged. But the specific experience of what happens when it happens to your fat body, I haven't seen a space that really takes that up. And, and it might just be that I haven't bumped into it, that I'm not saying such spaces don't exist. But I think there is something, yeah. some unique healing you need to do when that happens to you. And it is overwhelmingly likely to happen just because that's that's the nature of the odds. So it would be interesting if yeah. we had a space to really unpack that together about the unique ways that we feel that in our fat bodies. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, what do you think is one of the, the most interesting things you've learned or discovered or like most striking things that you wish everybody knew about? I mean, I don't know if this is most striking, but somewhere along the way, I realized that the first things that we know about a child when it emerges are its weight and its sex, its presumed sex. Yes. I think that that's weird. <laughs> I think that we are... <laughs> Folding yeah. kids into a set of discourses around gender and size, literally yeah. as they begin to breathe. And I don't know. I think that there's something really troubling about that. Yeah, that's so true that like all this, all this emphasis is placed on these two things that like may or may not change greatly. I mean, obviously the weight's going to change because babies don't stay seven pounds or whatever. Right. You'd hope for yeah. forever. <laughs> but I always wonder that why people are like, this is their weight. And I was always like, okay, nice. What does that mean? Like, what does that tell me? I'm always like, cool. So that's like a dog, a small dog. Right, exactly. Like, I don't know what info we get from it. Well, and I mean, really. it is meaningful to the people taking care of that child because you need to make sure that it's thriving. Mm-hmm. So you need to know its weight, its real weight at birth, and you need to know where it goes from there. And so like the weighing, and this is interesting too, particularly <laughs> because sometimes your baby doesn't gain weight and then that's super stressful as well. And suddenly you're measuring ounces yeah. and it's like the notion that, inability to gain weight is tragic it's like almost the first time that Mm. that gets discursively considered wow it's really interesting right but uh you do need to know for a little while that information about weight is relevant to confirm when you're a kid your baby yeah Yeah. but it it becomes irrelevant extremely rapidly if all other things are okay i understand why it would make like you got to track it when a baby needs a baby is just an extension of your art. It's just a neopet. Yeah, yeah. You got to, you know, you got to feed it. You got to take care of it. You got to do all the stuff for it. But like, I remember, and many, I'm sure many people who were fat as kids remember, I remember the doctor telling me I was like 99th percentile from the first time I went to the doctor and mm-hmm. I was like five, mm-hmm. you know? And that's a point where that was not super useful for me to hear as a five-year-old. Right. I remember right. being ashamed of my body as a five-year-old, you know? So like that is a point where it's like, who cares? You know, I'm still going to keep growing. Where's the line in the sand? That's the other thing, because like chubby babies were into Well, my kid is really big is kind of awesome. Like particularly if you are, you know, feeding a baby from your body, there's a certain gratification and like, look, I made this juicy thing. And so like, where is the (laughs) point between age one and age five where suddenly Uh 100 percentile becomes a threat? Rather than yeah, a totally. source of, you know, interest. Or they're, do- they're thriving. Right. Yeah, they're doing, Because it's whatever. like height. In early infancy, it's really more like height. My kid's really tall. My kid's really big is great. And then it, it's yeah. sometimes, somehow, height and weight divorce somewhere along the way there. Uh-huh. That's so true. Dang. Can't wait to have to worry about all of this. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I mean, I have always known I want to have kids. And, like, you know, I live with my boyfriend we have been partnered for seven years like we're on track yeah but even with all of that like a super supportive fat positive partner like the resources and abilities to find what healthcare professionals I want like even with that it seems so intimidating I'm in like the best position possible Mm -hmm. as a fat person to go after it Mm -hmm. and like I have support from my family I have good insurance quote-unquote good whatever counts as fucking good insurance this hellhole I have a partner who supports me and we, you know, we're on the same page about stuff and 
And I'm still like terrified. Mm-hmm. I'm terrified of it. Mm-hmm. And everybody kind of should be. I mean, I don't really mean that, but like pregnancy is not a foregone conclusion. <laughs> You're like, yeah, good. Yeah. Well, no, what I mean is <laughs> pregnancy is not a foregone conclusion for anybody that desires it. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you're afraid that it will be difficult or that you will be shamed or harmed along the way. I think mostly I'm just, I'm tired of the doctor and the fights and the this and the that. I'm tired. I'm excited to have the baby. Yeah. I want to be pregnant and have a kid. I'm not excited for the shit around it. Yeah, I agree. But so this is where for me, at least midwifery was transformative. And I know it isn't that for everybody, but for me, I really stepped outside of mainstream medicine because the majority of what was going on in yeah. my life for about 15 years was reproductive. And so I basically mm-hmm. could just not go see my family doctor. I didn't really have yeah. a family doctor because most of the things that were going on that were, you know, remarkable in my in my body had to do with my uterus. And so, and okay. I get that that's a real privilege. It's the privilege of having unremarkable health. Yeah. So I don't take that lightly, but it, it did really... It solves some wounds for me, I will say. Yeah, totally. Wow, this has been a super interesting conversation. I have so many more things we didn't even get to. I wanted to talk about what unstable bodies are because <laughs> I really like that yeah. phrasing and all sorts of other stuff. But this has been a great intro to reproductive and fat justice. I wish that we had more of like a just go to this person and you'll be fine, yeah. <laughs> you know, thing yeah. to say to people. But we don't. So how can people support the kind of work that you're doing and continue to support, like, you know, changing the medical field? Or if we can't, like, you know, change the medical field from inside, hopefully doctors and nurses that listen are are working on that. Mm -hmm. What can we do to support your work and to support other people's work that's trying to do similar stuff? It's a really good question. I think, you know, it is part of the bigger project of Fat Justice, but just acknowledging this is a real key part of people's lives in the same way that I think we're starting to understand, for example, gender affirming surgeries is a critical fat justice fight, right? So I think yes. this is a similar place where we need to really take the fight to this, but because the, you've got sort of a, a dual shame, the shame around reproduction and the shame around fatness, I think it stayed silent for longer than it ought to be. So I think seeing this, that maybe having, you know, fat specific reproductive care, or fertility care spaces that are designed for bodies like ours, not that there's a universal yeah. ours, but you know what I mean? I think that yes. would really go a long way. I think that would really go a long way. If you knew that you could go see a fertility specialist whose baseline was a larger body, that would really change a lot of things. Definitely. And we didn't even, I mean, we literally just talked about fatness. We didn't even get into like gender or racialized yeah. things or any of that, which obviously makes everything much mm-hmm. more complicated. This is such a huge minefield for but we could spend a long time digging into. That's right. So how can people follow your work? What are your links? Tell us your what people might want to read your articles. Where could they go? Fair enough. That's a good question. I'm pretty Googleable on my faculty page, <laughs> says Dr. May Friedman. <laughs> I don't know. This is what happens when I when I always forget when I'm like talking to a professor, they're like, I don't know, I don't care about social. I'm like, right. oh yeah, okay. No, I mean, listen, folks should email me. Like, I, I love getting email. I'm I'm open to email all the time. I would love to talk to anybody about anything, seriously. So, That's so to nice. folks that are hurting, like, if there's any way that I can help, I have a million resources. So if I can give you the article that you can take to your doctor so that they're less crappy to you, you know, yeah. anything like that. Maybe after this, you could send me a, some of those resources and we could put some of them in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. And some info about how to find further resources and your contact info. That's a very generous offer. For sure. And we also have another episode coming up where we're going to be talking about fertility, fat fertility again to somebody who is like a, in the field practitioner. So it'll Perfect. be a different perspective on yes. this. I think that the work you're doing is really valuable and important and just like witnessing what's happening and talking about it because I don't know how else we figure out what we do. I mean, that's how we change the world, right? Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the pod. This was great. I feel inspired to get pregnant in three to five years and <laughs> you have to call me when you do, okay? We'll talk some more. I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah. I will. I'm scared. I'm telling you. I'm nervous. No, seriously. I'm not joking. Reach out to me. I I will be your cheerleader. I will. I'm not joking. I will. Good. <laughs> okay. Well, neither of us are joking. Great. That's good. Thank you so much for being on the pod. I really appreciate this. 
Again, listeners, stay tuned, Fat Molly. We will have more talk about fat fertility. This was a great intro. And thank you so much. My pleasure. This season, we're doing a big sister mailbag for our patrons every Friday. This week's theme is all about dating. Woo. Mm -hmm. And we're answering questions like, what are the best conversation starters on dating apps? Oh, my God. I'm going to be a bad person for this because Victor and I met on OkCupid when it was a website. Like Tinder swiping didn't start till after we were dating, literally. But I will say that I have watched a lot of my friends swipe and I, my best friend Dana also is like a dating coach. So she talks about this all the time. So what I've learned from her is that she always asks a question and she's also often very goofy Hmm. because I think a lot of people do like hey how are you it's like what are you supposed to say to that what are your thoughts yelly i agree definitely ask a question if you can and also be goofy with it i remember i did have tinder and bumble and all of the good stuff and i used to psych myself up so much for starting conversations to the point where i just never did and I mean, obviously, I don't have to now because I'm married, (laughs) but looking back now, I definitely wish that I'd just like taken myself less seriously and told jokes and had more fun with it. I will say because I figured out I was bi when I was dating Victor, I've never been on dating apps like for queer women or like people outside of men. And I think I would feel more intimidated by that slash approach it differently. But especially if you're somebody who dates men, then you don't need to take it fucking seriously. Men are terrible on dating apps. You can just do whatever the fuck you want. (laughs) Yes. I don't know about you, but where I live, everybody around my area who is a man or presents as masculine on the dating apps has a fish picture, like a picture of them holding up a fish. fish pictures. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in LA, my friends are always, it's like actor, and then it says, like, it's them on a hike with a dog, and then it says something in their bio about how they want someone who's active, which means thin. Mm, True. There's, like, different stereotypes, like, every place, but yeah. I mean, especially if you're trying to talk to men, I would just would be like, so you can take the beginning of the convo so unseriously. Mm-hmm. Like it so doesn't matter. Like no offense, men who are listening, but like you can talk to so many, you could talk to a man on a dating app all day long because there's so many men out there on dating apps. And if you're, if it's a bad start to the convo, like just move on. You know what I mean? Like it's not that serious, which is why I especially recommend like being a little jokey or being like, you know, like making a joke about one of their pictures or like, you know, if they have something about, I don't know, some shared experience being jokey about that. But it's just like, if it's a swipey app, you have so little info about them. Mm-hmm. And it's like more about finding the vibe. I don't know. That's my opinion. And and also, <laughs> if they're grumpy at you right away, then like, you know, get out of there. Yeah, Who cares? totally. You don't want somebody that you can't be goofy with. Uh uh-uh, Not at all. Also, a tip from Dana is that she recommends getting to the point where you can do like a video chat very quickly because that's the best way to see if you have connecting vibes. So mm. I recommend that also. If you liked hearing us big sisters answer your questions, join our Patreon at Team Paisley Moomoo or above to hear full minisodes every Friday. And that's our episode. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's part two on reproductive justice and fat fertility. Shout out to Stylish Sista where you can get the only SAF stickers on the market. On the planet, in fact. The only ones. (laughs) You can find the All Bodies Are Good Bodies collab at stylishsista.etsy.com for a limited time, and I can't recommend enough that you do. How else will you meet other Fat Molly members in the wild? Reminder that we have a voicemail box at 213-375-5023, and we want to hear from you. We're currently working on an episode about queerness, and we want to hear from you. Did your relationship with your queerness change with your relationship to your fatness or vice versa? I know it did for me. Tell us about it at 213-375-5023. And let me tell you, Sophie, about a really freaking sweet Apple podcast review we got. They said, when I listen, I feel so excited that there's another reality where fat is fine. 
But the pain of fatness in a society that at large doesn't accept fatness is not overshadowed. It's explored with love and compassion. It's a brilliant and intelligent podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this message. That's so nice. That makes me feel so happy. (laughs) That's right. Being fat is fine. Especially right here. Hell yeah. No, nobody allowed who doesn't think that. Fat's fat's great. In fact, we are always bullying Lynn to get fatter. One day it'll happen. She was a true ally. She was. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to leave a legacy of reviews for me to cry over on the toilet long after SAF ends, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. As always, shout out to our patrons. Thank you to Emily Hagen, Priya Hey Chatterjee, Alexandra Beckley, Lee Sugar, Maria Martin Fee, Sylvia Tetters McRae, Shay, Stephanie Lee, Amber Knox, Pearl Eustace. We could not make the show without you. Bye. Bye. She's All Fat was created by me, Sophie Carter Khan, and April K. Quio, who graduated. We are an independent production. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash she's all fat pod. When you pledge to be a supporter, you'll get all sorts of goodies and extra content. Please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super important in making sure people find the show so we can grow the family. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the stuff we mentioned today. And don't forget to send us your questions at fyi at she'sallfatpod.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 213-375-5023 and we might even play it on the pod. Our episode ads are done in partnership with Acast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can get started at acast.com. Our theme music was composed and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our website was designed by Jesse Fish and our logo is by Hannah Sanger. Lynn Barbera co-produced and edited this episode. Yelly Cruz is our magical junior producer. Our thin crony forever is Maria Vertel. I'm our host and co-producer. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter handles are at She's All Fat Pod. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay safe. We love you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.